Hey guys, just before we jump into the episode, today we would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we record this podcast today. We pay our respects to the elders past and present and we extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people here today. This episode is brought to you by the Site Collaborative, our online psychology clinic bringing good quality, accessible therapy to you in the comfort of your own home. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode. My name is Kat. I am a registered psychologist. And my name is Amy. I am a registered psychotherapist. And together we make... Team Rocket, Team Team Rocket. (laughs) Welcome back to another episode, everyone. Today we are diving deep into those pesky thought traps, otherwise known as cognitive distortions. We hope to offer you some information on the 12 most common cognitive distortions that we see as clinicians working with clients and some tips and tricks to become unstuck if you're finding yourself trapped in some of these pesky patterns. So without further ado, let's get into to the episode. A beautiful introduction, darling Amy. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I thought about that one for a minute. How are you, Ames? How's life? Give me the update. Uh, I, do you know what? I have been noticing this in my personal and professional life that there is this general feeling of fatigue and exhaustion at the moment. I feel like getting to the end of this year, I'm getting a general sense that everyone is feeling quite burnt out and tired. I've really, really noticed that. And one thing that I've noticed again, personally and professionally, is that when we're feeling tired and exhausted, getting to the end of this massive year with COVID, that the things that make us feel good are the first things to fall by the wayside. So gentle reminder to everyone out there that, you know, not to stop doing the things that make you feel good, like going to the gym, um, being conscious of where and who you're spending time and energy with, all of those things, because I've definitely noticed that across the board lately. So not to neglect the resources that fill up your cup. Um, so, yeah, I've yeah, definitely noticed that. What about you? Yeah, no, I've, I've actually been feeling maybe not tired but more just like, oh, my God, it is practically Christmas. Mm. How is it <laughs> November? <laughs> what the hell is happening? I heard Michael Bublé. It's beginning to look a lot yeah. like. Christmas. <laughs> I'm not ready. It's practically the Thursday of the year, right? Like it's it's Christmas is coming and I'm still catching up. Is it 2019? Is it 2021? I'm still really unsure of right? you, let alone the month. How is it 2022 I soon? I know. That that should just be wiped. Mm. I think we should get two years. Again. <laughs> we should get two years just to get out of jail free. <laughs> like, don't you reckon? Yeah, that never happened. Anyway, so yeah, I've just I, I I've certainly been feeling more frantic. Mm. Frantic of like, oh my god, I've got so much to do. Like we're wrapping up our work in yeah. what what four four weeks now. Oh my god, four weeks. Christmas is so exciting. I love summer holidays and I'm I'm actually getting so excited for a bit of time off, but I'm just also it's like you can't get too excited yet. You know, those like the weeks where it's marathon. like, yeah. yeah, it's like this is your home stretch, girlfriend. Your legs are hurting. You're crying. You're, you're sweating. You're sweating in places you didn't <laughs> even know could sweat. Mm. And we're almost there. We are so close. And you're crawling. Don't give up. That's how I'm feeling. Yeah, no, you're right. It's like, it's like a mix between that exhaustion but like frazzled, yeah. floundering feeling. Yeah. yeah, it's like, okay, I can't feel my legs anymore. <laughs> so I just got to get to the finish line. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's exactly how it feels like. So yeah, I've been feeling quite, quite, yeah, just afraid, just chaotic energy over here. So I'm so chaotic. I feel like every week I come on, I'm like, I'm just chaotic energy over here. You're also planning wedding 3.0, so understandable. Yeah, lots of chaos. So Ames, talk to me about your pit and peak of the week. Pit and peak of the week. Okay, well, my peak is probably something that we're both going to share so I won't spend too much time on that we went to this beautiful place in Dural at Guestlands Little Italy for Cat's belated 30th and it was just divine it felt like being in Italy and I haven't been to Italy so it was 
like the Europe trip I've been waiting for since COVID. (laughs) It was, yeah, it was just so beautiful. And we did a lot of relaxing. We did a lot of leisuring and laying around by a pool. We had a little movie media room day where we just got into our trackies and watched Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. (laughs) Let's be friends. Best friends. Best friends. No, it was amazing. Best time ever. So that is my peak. My pit is a little bit a little bit of an embarrassing one. I've already told you this off my cat, so probably won't be, you know, a huge huge reaction from you, but my pit is that I thought I would mow our lawn over the week when I had some time. So I got dressed up in my little lawn mowing clothes, like my little gardening clothes. I was, I was ready to go, picked up all the dog poo, picked up all the bits of plastic from things that Mowgli had chewed. I checked that the lawn mower had petrol. I primed it. I did everything right, or so I thought. I proceeded to then try and start the lawnmower for about 30 minutes. I was pulling and pulling and pulling, getting so frustrated. Like, you know, when you're so frustrated, you're at the brink of tears and you're getting so annoyed at yourself and so worked up. I was sweaty. It was a, it was a hot day. It was a humid day. I live in like Sydney inner West. And so it's like, it's, it's humid out there. Like it's stanky out there. (laughs) (laughs) Humid, hot, saunery. Anyway, It's, it's hot. Gosh, I was sweating. Oh yeah, I was. Yeah, look, it wasn't pretty. wasn't Was not pretty. Yeah, and I was just, and I was exhausted too. So I was frustrated. I was sweaty. I was exhausted. Trying to start this lawnmower. Just trying to do a good thing by my fur baby. Trying to give him the backyard he deserves. (laughs) And oh man, so I just took a time out. Just took a little breather. I was like, what have I missed? Why isn't this working? I must be doing something wrong. I've primed. It's got petrol. You know, I've. I've emptied the little trap, what do you call it, like, you know, tub thing that catches it. The the catcher. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) The grass catcher. I don't know. Emptied it. And then I looked at the throttle and I was like, hmm, I see. I had been trying to start the lawnmower with the throttle like closed and if, if you've never mowed a lawn before if you've never an encounter with a lawnmower before you probably have no idea what I'm talking about but essentially it's like trying to accelerate a car while also having the brake on you're just not going to go anywhere nothing's going to happen and so for about half an hour I had been trying to start this stupid lawnmower with the the brakes on like trying to drive a car with a handbrake on or something like that and once I realized I opened up the throttle and it started straight away and I mowed the lawn and, yeah, it, it took me a good good 20 minutes to just be like, <sighs> okay. But the lawn looks great. Look, Ames, I think it's pretty amazing that you are mowing a lawn. Thank you. I mean, I think that's incredible that you can even, when you describing that story to Josh, I was like, what is a throttle? <laughs> How does one find a throttle on a lawnmower? Yeah, look, I'm <clears throat> obviously I'm quite rusty at, at the big old lawn mowing. <laughs> you know, yeah, we got there in the end. So, uh, Pete. Pit, but maybe even a peak that you know persevered and <laughs> the lawn looks great. Lawn looks great. I don't know about you, but our lawn since moving to a house that has a, a real life yard, it's gonna sound really ridiculous. Just grass grow really quickly. Like does it, ours, we have to mow the lawn probably three every three or four days. Is that normal, or do we just have? You do have really really beautiful luscious grass every three days. I mean that. that I think that's. Can if someone you're being tell us if that's normal? Particular about we're not. That's a thick. Wow, that's, that's she's a thickie. She's, yeah. she's so thick out there. I wish my hair grew that fast. <laughs> Me too. They they have been given some Bondi boots. Yeah, they've got some JS Health going. They do. They've got some beautiful. What did the previous owner put in there? I don't know. Some secrets. If I, I tell you, I will. Whatever you know. your lawn is taking, <laughs> just fertilize, just manure. Yeah. We are going to jump into the episode now, and today we are talking all things cognitive distortions. So cognitive distortions, if you haven't heard of them, they may also be known as thinking errors or unhelpful thinking styles. And if you still haven't heard of any of those things, you'll likely know what they are. So Ames, let's jump into it. What is a cognitive distortion? Well, if you are living, breathing and listening to this podcast, firstly, thank you for listening, but also chances are that (laughs) you have been caught in a thought trap or cognitive distortion once in a while. No one is immune. We can, however, learn to become a little bit more aware and identify these unhelpful ways of thinking. First, I think 
our thoughts have such a large influence over how we feel and act. Cognitive distortions are essentially negative thinking patterns that impact the way we feel about what's happening. They often become automatic, repetitive, and increasingly negative if not checked because our thoughts impact the way we feel about ourself and others. They can often lead to things like depression, anxiety, low self-esteem, frustration. Generally, they, they function to reassure us and problem solve. Just however, because they do tend to have quite a negative focus, they end up creating a little bit more harm than good. They are extremely relevant to everyday life and our relationships and we can get stuck in these thought patterns or thought traps and it it actually feels awful. And I think this is why Kat and I really wanted to do this episode because when we are experiencing cognitive distortion, it does feel really, really horrible and it can, like I said, said, become really repetitive. So although these are essentially irrational thoughts, we often feel them as truth. And if we're not aware that they're happening, if we aren't able to catch them, we can end up falling into this this kind of trap. So there's a variety of common negative thought patterns that we will go into, and they underlie many kind of social interactions and personal experiences. So being able to identify some of these and become familiar with how they shape our way of perceiving the world and what's happening is a really important first step um, to break free of these destructive thoughts. And I think really important reminder too that there's nothing wrong with you if you do experience any of these cognitive distortions. They're really, really normal and they are just, you know, automatic intrusive thoughts is another is another way that sometimes they might be described. So again, just being able to identify and recognize when these cognitive distortions pop up is the key to unlocking some of that acceptance, understanding and compassion for self and others. So really becoming familiar with how they shape the way we perceive the world and self is an important first step. What about you, Kat? What how would you explain a cognitive distortion? This is much more Kat's realm of genius, little CBT queen. <laughs> How would you describe a cognitive distortion? I feel so much pressure because I was like, great explanation. I'm ready for the next stop point. <laughs> <laughs> no, I really, I, I really can't add too much more onto that. Exactly as Aim said, they are something that happens to everyone. No one is more prone. I think everyone, yeah, no one is immune to experiencing cognitive distortions. They certainly can feed into those presentations of anxiety or mood disorders. But I I think it's really helpful to note here that just because everyone experiences doesn't mean that it's something that you can't change or something that, you know, can't be supported or or helped because I think once we start to read them out, if you don't know what they are, you might start to identify with a lot of them. I know as I was going through them, I was like, oh, Jesus, Um, (laughs) I really (laughs) identify with a few of these. So it's really normal and I think there's certainly some, we will provide some tips at the end to, I, I guess, if you do identify with any, what you can do about them. They were essentially first identified by the father of CBT himself, Aaron Beck. He first uh, outlined cognitive distortions in the 1960s and they formed a central part of his cognitive theory of depression and it later began yeah, kind of formed into CBT. So it's a really basic and centric part of CBT. And yeah, it's a really interesting part. So I think it'd be really great for us to go into them and label each one of them. Beautiful. Just in case there is anyone out there that doesn't know what we're referring to when we say CBT, we are referring to cognitive behavioral therapy. Uh, just, yeah, just in case I didn't mention that first, but CBT is cognitive behavioral therapy. So the type of framework Kat is much more familiar with than, than I. I think also oh, why do we get them is, is something that we could go into a little bit here just before we jump into some of the more common cognitive distortions uh, that we observe as clinicians. I guess when I'm working with clients, I see cognitive distortions appear through those negative thought patterns that typically arise from deeply held core beliefs that are usually a result of either childhood trauma or past events, or some can stem from low self-esteem or being a little bit more higher on the sensitivity scale. 
or again, kind of stemming from past experiences, if you have more of a shame-based view of self or a strong inner critic, oftentimes getting stuck in thought traps can, um, we, can come from there. So these beliefs may include things like not feeling like you are lovable, feeling like the world is a bad or unsafe place, or feeling like you're not good enough. Um, those are some of the kind of core beliefs that, that I guess can really induce cognitive distortion and be quite painful and debilitating as well. What about you, Kat? Where do you kind of see cognitive distortions most often stemming from? Yeah, no, I 100% agree. I think certainly they form almost they form the way of strengthening core beliefs, don't they? And I mm. think as humans we are biased already uh, and so often when something like the negativity bias comes in if we have a core belief we will try and seek out evidence to suggest that that core belief is true you know like I'm unlovable therefore the reason that my partner ended the relationship with me is because I'm unlovable or the reason that my friend didn't text me back is because I'm unlovable and often we don't you know we're not programmed to take into the other 90% of the inf- of information where that would refute that core belief right so so i think when thinking about cognitive distortions it's it's mostly based on on human biases and thinking errors which are really common and really normal so it's suggested that cognitive distortions are natural consequences of you know, really fast track defensive coping mechanisms that are really sensitive to threat so for example they're not errors in brain functioning however they're more errors in the way that we perceive stimuli around us right Mm. so in other words stress could cause people to adapt their thinking in ways that are useful for their immediate survival but often these thoughts are not rational they're not often based from evidence and they're usually not very healthy in the long term so I think when speaking about the function it's like everything, we're programmed for survival, mm. you know, no matter how sophisticated we are as as human beings, that our brain will still and probably will likely always be programmed for survival. And I think when we think about cognitive distortions, evolutionary theory suggests that that's true, that that it's it, just in case that mm. that 1% of evidence is true, that, that I am unlovable and I can protect myself from it. I can withdraw, I can shut down or whatever it might be because you know it's better to be safe than sorry so so I would say that that may be one way to describe where cognitive distortions come from and and why we do get them yeah absolutely and do you think that there are some people more prone to cognitive distortions than others yes I would say some people are more prone to cognitive distortions people who do suffer from anxiety disorders mood disorders even personality disorders are more likely to experience cognitive distortions and I think yeah as Ames you were saying those who are more I guess empaths perhaps or those higher on the sensitivity scale may suffer cognitive distortions further also really interestingly a lot of work has been lots of research around eating disorders and cognitive Mm. distortions so I would say those who suffer from um, any disordered eating or eating disorders I think there's a high uh, correlation with cognitive distortions and eating disorders what do you think absolutely I agree with that and I particularly do see a lot of people with distorted eating patterns also really struggling with a lot of cognitive distortions as well I also think too examining from the lens of attachment theory here in particular anxious attachment styles as they are usually very hyper vigilant to change in their relationships um, and in their relational dynamic so things like emotional distance and this can lead to cognitive distortions which we'll go into um, like personalizing mind reading emotional reasoning all of those types of things can really play out uh, if you have an anxious attachment style as well Mm, absolutely yeah all right aims the first cognitive distortion that you are running us through is all or nothing thinking. Talk to me about all or nothing thinking. Okay, so all or nothing thinking is actually quite common and Kat and I see this uh, quite a lot in in clients that we work with and <laughs> probably also <laughs> personal lives as well. So all or nothing thinking is also known as black and white thinking and it is common in people with panic disorder, depression, anxiety disorders, etc. Essentially something or someone is either all good or all bad. You split your views into extremes. So if we make a mistake, it's irredeemable. I am now a complete failure. 
all or nothing is actually a hallmark for perfectionism as well. So it can lead to setting really unrealistic standards for ourselves and others, which sets up disappointment and can affect our mood and motivation. This can show up as a trauma response to things like no one can be trusted or I will never be safe. Or trauma bonding, when there can be difficulty acknowledging harm done by someone we love. Often this is quite common in emotionally abusive relationships. We assume that if we acknowledge something bad or harmful has happened or that they've done to us, then they're 100% bad. Ignoring the nuance that sometimes people who have shown us love can also inflict harm upon us. For people with anxiety or depression, this often leads to just seeing the negative to any situation. So people who fall into victim all or nothing thinking believe that they're either successful or a complete failure. People with panic disorder are often susceptible to this type of thinking as well and can often overlook valuable traits that they have or or valuable roles that they may play in their life, such as being a really good friend or a good partner um, when panic becomes really debilitating. For example, say you have to leave a friend's birthday early and you tell yourself that you'll never overcome this and that you're a terrible friend and you ruin every situation. I think a real antidote here can be to take context into account and essentially adding shades of grey to this black and white thinking. So using that example, uh, again, it might be showing some self-compassion around that, okay, well, showing up to the birthday was a major success in coping with panic disorder, letting go of that word never and begin to consider that actually it was a triumph over avoidance and leaving early didn't ruin every situation. It was necessary to manage overwhelming feelings of anxiety. So Kat, our next cognitive distortion is personalization. Tell us all about personalization. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I think it's interesting how you noted like an antidote for all or nothing thinking is that self-compassion and context because I think that's pretty true for all of them. them. (laughs) So take take, have that in mind, self-compassion and context and, yeah, evidence would be really helpful when thinking about the antidote to all of these cognitive distortions. Personalization. So this is a really common thinking error in which you take things personally for circumstances that are way beyond your control and are not your fault or 100% your fault. This cognitive distortion often results in feeling guilty or assigning blame without contemplating all factors or context involved. For example, if your child has an accident and you blame yourself, say, for example, your child falls over and you blame yourself for allowing them to go outside for a walk, or this is actually a really common one, if you feel that if your partner had done the dishes like he they said that they would, that you'd be able to go to bed on time and not wake up tired and grumpy. So, With personalizing, you take things really personally and I think you create meaning about what that action means for yourself and you you create some values out of that. So you you may feel, yeah, 100% responsible for the actions of people around you and make it mean something about yourself. Mm. A really common one that I think is really interesting to note here that I think Ames, we could probably relate to on, on all factors is when your friend is talking about the way that they see their body and their perception of yes. their bodies. And then we take their words as an attack against our own body. Yes. And I think that that's such a common thing that happens, right? Because when your friend is talking, for example, negatively about their body, and they think, oh, I, I don't like this about myself, I don't like this, we immediately project it back imagine onto ourselves. Imagine what they think about my body. Oh, yeah, imagine about me. Oh, my God, what do they think about my arms or what, whatever I look like? And isn't that interesting that that friend probably you were not at the top of their mind that they, they were talking about their body and I think that's such a common you know distorted thinking or, or thinking fallacy that happens is this personalization that that is so beyond our control or out or out you know outside of the circumstances so as Ames was saying it, it is about taking context into account it's separating yourself from the event it's like well let's go back to the facts the friend was talking about their body because they're distressed about their body it, it often doesn't have much to do with mm. if if at all to do with ourselves and something that I get some of my clients to do when they're working with something like personalization is I'll say well how much of this was your fault and I might say give me a percentage okay this is 100% my fault okay well let's let's take into account context let's take into account mm. say for example your friend let's take into account what it was been going on for your friend or so, so I think it's interesting when we start to really 
break it down to percentages. I know that sounds very clinical, very mathematical, but I think this is actually a really helpful tool in understanding what else could be going on and not make it 100% personalized or 100% our fault is breaking it down so that it was maybe 25% on us or something like that. So personalization is a really, really common thinking error and one that happens so unconsciously and automatically. We don't even realize, well, I think for a lot of dysfunctional thinking that we don't realize it, but it certainly is something to keep at the front of your mind if you're someone who takes things really personally, especially parallels with perfectionism, uh, anxiety and anxiety disorders is is trying to seek some control, right? Mm. Like I think that's a function of personalization is seeking some control. So that is personalization. All right, Ames, talk to me about number three, overgeneralization. Thank you, Kat. I, I love those tips and absolutely agree with what you have just said around personalization. Overgeneralization is particularly common with clients that suffer social anxiety. You may view any negative experience that happens as part of an inevitable pattern of mistakes. Essentially, if something happens once, it will happen over and over and over again. I always make a fool of myself. Really blanket statements that keep us engulfed in negativity, anxiety, and fear. For example, the whole day was awful because my shoe broke in front of everyone. Overgeneralization tends to worsen your thoughts, making you on edge, thinking everyone dislikes you and that you can't do anything right. We can have self-limiting overgeneralization, which is when you keep yourself from meeting your own potential. For example, I'm not good enough. I could never do that. And this functions to keep us safe from taking risks. But instead, we often end up just feeling really bad about ourselves. As Kat was saying, it, it is part of that adaptive coping mechanism that wants to keep us safe from any potential threats like embarrassment and humiliation that's quite threatening to our nervous system it doesn't feel very good and so our brain wants to protect us from that overgeneralization is essentially seeing a single negative event as a never-ending pattern of failure or defeat so for example even something like if I'm in a rush to go somewhere and I get a red light it is that nothing ever goes right for me you know something bad always happens Overgeneralizations can be navigated by looking for exceptions and trying to replace those words like always, never with things like maybe and might. Just to shift that negativity bias that Kat was talking about to have a more, uh, I guess, accurate perspective or representation of the world. Next one is catastrophizing. Kat, can you please <laughs> run us through catastrophizing? And we this did have a couple of questions a, on this one. So I think this one is very, very it's common. It's a personal favorite of mine too. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, ah, yes. My old, hello darkness, my old friend. Catastrophizing is related to jumping to conclusions without any evidence. In this case, you jump to the worst worst possible conclusion in every single scenario, no matter how improbable, no matter how irrational it is. Uh, this cognitive distortion often comes with lots of what ifs. What if this were to happen? What if he didn't call because he got into an accident? What if she hasn't arrived because she didn't really want to spend her time with me? What if they didn't write back to me because they don't like me? If my alarm doesn't go off, then I'm late for my important meeting. And then what if I get fired? So I uh, Catastrophizing is something where your thought pattern often spirals and, and almost feels like a bit of a hurricane of thoughts. And this functions to keep us safe, like all cognitive distortions do, because if we can deal with worst case scenario, if we can deal with the catastrophe, we can deal with everything else. But I think the flaw in cognitive distortions, specifically catastrophizing, is our mind is bringing up these scenarios for to, to, to keep us safe, as Ames was saying, from these threats of, well, if I get fired from my job, well, then how am I going to cope with that and what's the plan, right? That, that's our brain loves to create plans all the time. But often what can happen is through this process, we can start to believe that these things are true or will actually happen. Our brain doesn't process likelihoods or probability very well. It will go, as I was mentioning before, it's better to be safe than sorry. So let's just say that I do lose my job you know, the function is to try and come up with a bit of a plan just in case it happens to protect us. But 99.5% of the times, often that never actually happens, but it feels like it does. It feels like this is true. So catastrophizing is those, you know, jumping to those really worst, worst case scenarios and is certainly centered 
through anxiety disorders, personality disorders, specifically catastrophizing, because I, I think there's quite a strong correlation or link there between catastrophizing those cognitive distortions and those diagnoses. So it's an important and, and really, I would say it's probably one of the most common um, cognitive distortions that we can experience. As Ames was saying, when working through catastrophizing, a really helpful way to look at that, and we will get into tips, but I think specifically for catastrophizing is have these things that you've been scared of or worried about or fearful of, have these worst case scenarios, have they come true before? And you might say, yes, this terrible thing has happened or yes. But then another question to follow up is, well, how often have have these terrible things come true? And is it likely that they will come true again? Or or what's the likelihood that, you know, you won't lose your job because you sleep in? The likelihood, what's more realistic is perhaps that you get a slap on the wrist, is your boss will be frustrated or no one will even notice. So I think it's really helpful for those catastrophic thoughts or thinking patterns the antidote is that, yeah, that, that rationality, that self-compassion and viewing the history as a way to predict future behaviour. So catastrophizing, we've all been there. Mm. <laughs> we all are still there sometimes. <laughs> Absolutely. Our little catastrophizing brain is just trying to solve problems, but the issue with that is those problems don't exist yet. We're definitely the next cognitive distortion we have on our list is should statements. And this is a personal, uh, <laughs> personal struggle. I feel like really attacked and seen going through yeah. these. <laughs> I, I, I definitely identify with should statements and, and I have a lot of clients who I talk through should statements with as well. So this type of faulty thinking can contribute to panic, anxiety, and depression. Should statements can contribute to feelings of fear and worry as they place unreasonable demands and pressure on ourselves, selves, on ourselves, on ourselves, on ourselves, English, which can make us feel guilty or like we've failed, which can play a major role into developing stress, that really kind of chronic prolonged stress. They are essentially the arbitrary rules that we set for ourselves and others. For example, I should make others happy or I shouldn't make mistakes. People should always be on time. I must go to the gym. You know, I have a great job and a loving partner. I shouldn't feel unhappy. This guilt-inducing narrative creates a lot of pressure and unrealistic expectations, anxiety and frustration, disappointment. And when we apply should statements to others, we can feel really let down, disappointed and angry at others as well. So often the function of should statements is actually motivation. For example, I should eat healthy, but it kind of works in the opposite way because it's like having a nagging parent or, you know, like a nagging voice on your shoulder, constantly telling you what to do all the time, which puts a lot of pressure and unrelenting expectation on self and sometimes others too. Often what happens is we kind of rebel against what we're telling ourselves to do because we feel like we've already failed because we're putting so much pressure on ourselves and it's very anxiety inducing and it simply just doesn't feel nice. It feels awful to kind of constantly be telling yourself to, to do better. I should be doing more or this person should be doing more for me. So we end up feeling really demotivated and we kind of just feel like failures. You know, if you can relate to this, you know, if it sounds like you are, really coming from a place of guilt with a lot of your internal monologue and and using should statements, sometimes just a little shift in the way we're talking to ourselves can be helpful. So things like I can or I'd like to alleviate that feeling of pressure and stress um, and alleviate that feeling of frustration too. And for other people, so rather than saying they should do this or they, you know, they should make more of an effort, it would be nice if. This way we're still acknowledging the wish or the need, but we're kind of eliminating that critical judgment or or that pressure expectation from from those thoughts. Mm, I love that. That's a really great way to think of it, Ames. All right, number five is labeling. Labeling or mislabeling refers to taking a single attribute and turning it into an absolute. So, (laughs) wow, wow. (laughs) 
I hope people listening to these, I hope we're not the only ones that be like, wow, yes. This happens when you judge and then define yourself or others based on an isolated event. The labels assigned are usually negative and extreme. For example, you see someone you follow on Instagram post a really good looking, attractive selfie and you call them shallow. Or if you don't submit a report on time and you label yourself useless. This is really similar to overgeneralization. This is a really extreme form that leads you to judge an action of yourself or others without taking the context into account. This in turn leads you to see yourself and others in a way that is likely not very accurate. Labeling as a cognitive distortion, in addition, causes inaccurate thinking and can maintain and perpetuate harmful or dysfunctional emotions. If you fail a test and come to the conclusion that this means you're a failure, it will likely trigger feelings of sadness, despair, hopelessness, disappointment, etc. Whereas recognizing that you merely failed a test would most probably result in a more mild disappointment. Furthermore, if you believe the label, identifying as a failure, you won't know what to do to solve the problem. Failing a test means you need to study more. Problem solved. Well, for the most part. Failing in life, however, how do you solve that? You know, often that can really perpetuate the hopelessness. Labeling also causes problems when we apply it to others. Mm. If you label your husband as uncaring because he appears not to listen when you want to talk about your day, it can feel really miserable and isolating that you're married to an uncaring person. But if you consider the behavior as the problem rather than the person, it becomes a lot more easier to diffuse and discuss with your partner or your husband and potentially work through. For instance, it may be, as we said, take into account context. It may be that your partner needs time to unwind at the end of the day or has difficulty concentrating in general, right? And this is more a focus on the behavior rather than the person separating the behavior from the person is really, really helpful. But it's also really important to note, though, that your feelings are always valid and reasonable. Number six aims, mind reading. Talk to me about mind reading. People think this is our job, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) We should know this really well. Don't we ever. So mind reading is basically when we make assumptions about what someone is thinking based on their behavior without confirming with them whether this is true or not. So a common example I hear with clients is if their partner is being quieter than usual, they make the assumption that their partner must be really upset with them or that they must have done something to make them mad. Or if, say, a friend or their partner hasn't written back to them in the expected period of time, they make the assumption that something must be wrong or I'm not important to them or they don't like us anymore. Very, very common for the anxiously attached folks out there to to be quite prone to mind reading. It's an assumption based off our interpretation, which usually comes from a projection of our own emotions or insecurity. So for example, feeling insecure and having a core pain or belief that you're unlovable can lead us to interpret situations with no conclusive evidence. So jumping to conclusions can also pop up here, which involves interpreting things negatively without facts or without really knowing. Okay, so we're just jumping to a conclusion, jumping to an assumption. So these assumptions say a lot more about how we're feeling and what we're processing rather than what's actually happening. I would work with clients on identifying and making sense of their underlying cause for this worry. So if we find ourselves mind reading, it can help to be curious about asking, how am I relating to this situation? Because oftentimes we will be responding to a perception of the past. So what is the story that I'm telling myself and what's actually happening here and now can be really, really helpful with working on mind reading and understanding that, okay, well, yeah, how am I relating to this? What's coming up for me? can be helpful because never assume oftentimes we have two very different subjective realities in interpersonal relationships and what might be coming up for us could be a kind of like a little sign or a message of something going on internally for us. So important to to explore that and be curious about that. I think. Mm, mm. Kat, what about fortune telling? Also another misconception of our job. Mind reading and fortune telling. That would honestly be an incredible skill to have Mm, both of these. Yeah. 
I would Imagine love being a mind reader. Uh, people think that's <laughs> oh, they can read minds. Yeah, <laughs> she can read minds. Fortune telling is a cognitive, another cognitive distortion, would you believe, in which you predict a negative outcome without realistically considering the actual odds of that outcome being true. It is often linked to anxiety, depression, and also something like OCD, and is one of the most cognitive distortions that arise during the course of cognitive restructuring, which is where you do a thought action diffusion, where you start to do diffuse those cognitive distortions. Often you can do that in CBT and therapy. Predicting the future becomes a cognitive distortion fortune telling when we assume that some event or events will end badly for us, that we will fail at something or we'll be in danger, more as an assumption rather than an educated guess which takes into account context and history. Of course, some events certainly can leave us in danger and we need to be able to assess risk in these situations, which is why cognitive distortions exist, right? Like on based on that 1% that these things could happen, our brain will always want that 1%. We will always consider that 1% and make it feel more real, right? But fortune telling is not an accurate assessment based on evidence. It is a global assumption we make without considering the actual odds. As I mentioned before, our brain doesn't do well understanding there's actually a bias for this i forget the name of it it's it's a lot during covid um not understanding odds that's with h doesn't it yeah heuristic bias Mm. there was a lot of talk about it with covid because yeah um, i know exactly what you're talking about bias that people couldn't understand after a certain point probability and uh, you know like yeah Heuristic. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. Like it. <laughs> Guys, it's Sunday afternoon. It's doing our bestest. Oh, gosh, yes. Josh says, messy meat players. <laughs> okay. For example, thinking I'm not going to get the job is a great example of fortune telling. Although we have some sense of perhaps our performance in a job interview, how do you know that? Do you know your competitors? Do you know all the other evidence do you know what others said do you know whether you know they wanted the job do you know if their personality was a better fit I think often fortune telling really functions as a way to protect ourselves as Ames was saying our brain is trying to solve problems for us but often these problems don't exist yet and often something like fortune telling does uh, create quite a barrier for people when going for especially in social events Often if you're someone who's quite socially anxious, you might say, well, I don't want to go to this event with my friends because I'm just going to look like an idiot, mm. right? Fortune telling, that, that, that's your, yeah, you're certainly a way that your brain is perceiving threat through social interactions and is really wanting you to be rather safe than sorry. And I think fortune telling often is not based in a lot of evidence. It's based on fear, fear and irrationality um, and adaptability rather than logic. So that is the uh, fortune telling. Ames, talk to me about the mental filter. Uh, the mental filter. <laughs> uh, this refers to filtering out positives and dwelling on negatives, essentially. It's like having a pool and dropping one droplet of ink in the water and then the whole pool changes to that colour. That single drop of ink discolors everything and we dwell on that droplet of ink exclusively. So for example, if your boss provides you with positive feedback all week about how amazing your work is and how wonderful you are and then makes one comment on a component of work that you're doing to improve on. So for example, hey, great work this week. Maybe try to have your paperwork in on Thursday instead of Friday so we can have more time Uh, if anything needs to be discussed or altered, etc. And your takeaway on this might be, oh, my God, I'm so bad at my job. And you dwell on that all day, that because I haven't gotten my paperwork in on Thursday, I haven't done my job right. Completely dismissing everything good that had happened and, and all the good feedback that your boss had given you. In relationships, this can show up as your partner saying something that upsets you, which causes you to filter out all of the positive times you've shared together. It can be good to note that our brains have a negativity bias here. Uh, And and Kat, you mentioned this a little bit earlier. And the negative 
negative the negativity bias um, is basically a tendency to focus more on negative events than positive events and this is rooted in evolution as negative events often pose greater threat to survival than positive ones also our minds filter out a lot of unnecessary not needed information leaving us with the things that we believe to be most important and what is more important than things that might pose a threat so we do generally tend to have a negativity bias and if this is something that you feel like you have the the mental filter one little tip for this in particular and as Kat said we will go through explaining uh, a couple more tips and tricks at the end of this episode but particularly for the mental filter practicing asking yourself if there are any neutralities here so rather than focusing on negative things rather than trying to shift straight to positive things sometimes it can be helpful to put a little buffer or a little bridge in between that and look at what is neutral so neither good or bad can be helpful with navigating that next up we have emotional reasoning emotional reasoning yes great explanation of the mental filter aims love that emotional reasoning entails inaccurately evaluating yourself and your circumstances based on the emotions you're experiencing so what that means is if you're experiencing anxiety you may incorrectly come to the conclusion that a dangerous event may occur or you will not be able to cope with a future outcome because you're feeling anxious right it's almost like the egg before the chicken if you're experiencing depression you may incorrectly conclude that you're worthless that your current life is terrible and your future feels really hopeless or for example if you're experiencing anger you may incorrectly conclude that someone with whom you know in your friendship group or who you're interacting with is uncaring and does not respect you and never will. Even though I really want to make it clear it's very valid, our emotions are always valid and reasonable, emotional reasoning will often function as a cognitive distortion because it will often use your emotion as a way to predict what's actually true. We can become angry, but that can also be a feeling as a response to a situation, however, not the cause of a situation. So, the reason is that the intensity of the emotions we experience is often out of proportion to the evidence. This is a pr- pretty tricky one to grasp, but let me see if I can <laughs> make this clearer. When you experience anxiety, the intensity is often very high. When we're anxious, literally our brain is like, is panic. <laughs> Something's wrong. Something bad's about to happen. And as a result, what our brain wants us to do is overestimate the likelihood of something bad happening so we can go into that fight, flight, freeze response. When you feel depressed or when you're experiencing something like depression, the intensity is so high because you're thinking in a, in a quite a severely or overly negative way about yourself, your current life and your future. So yeah, emotional reasoning is using a feeling and making that feel as though, say you're feeling angry, you're, you may blame your anger or that reaction on the action of someone else right rather than it being an emotional response to a situation so we use our emotions as a way to reason what we should or what should or shouldn't be right or wrong in a situation Mm, yeah that makes sense I love how you've explained that because it can be a really tricky one to make sense of Mm. emotional reasoning the next one we have is disqualifying the positive and this one I see a lot with clients who I'm working with trauma around because it is quite a common trauma-related cognitive distortion as we may ignore any positive action we took in order to keep safe and focus exclusively on all that we didn't do. Uh, One example that can tend to come up and I will just put a little trigger warning here just discussing sexual assault or sexual abuse sometimes disqualifying the positive comes up here with things like sexual abuse or sexual trauma because often we feel responsible for what we haven't done and often this leads to us feeling responsible for the whole thing so responsible for the bad and scary awful things that have happened so often it is about sitting with clients and we work to understand that it was actually the wisdom of our organ that did the best it could do with the resources available at the time that allowed us to survive you survived something really traumatic and that's not a negative thing at all and that can be really really tricky so other other times disqualifying the positive can show up when we take compliments 
So sometimes we turn them around to become a negative thing, like she's only saying that because she wants me to like her. Or if you succeed at something, uh, you tell yourself that it doesn't count and you just got lucky. So it's quite similar to a mental filter actually, but instead of filtering out the positive, we dismiss it completely and tell ourselves that it just doesn't count. Okay, last but not least, Kat, take it away. All right, there are quite a few more cognitive distortions, but this one is, a, I guess, the last of the well-known um, cognitive distortions, and it's a really interesting one, and I think one we'll all be able to relate to. It is called Heaven's Reward Fallacy. Have you heard of this? I have. Yeah? The Heaven's Reward Fallacy manifests as a belief that one's struggles and one's suffering and one's hard work will result in a reward. For example, I work really hard or I, you know, have been working crazy hours or I've suffered so much so therefore things will get better right and I think people will this will manifest as karma this will manifest as religion religious belief or spiritual belief Mm. that kind of karma will go around you know karma will come back around the universe the universe has something in store for me that 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 really similar um so heaven's reward fallacy is is a thinking distortion because there may be examples where people have suffered or or worked and there hasn't been a payoff or people have suffered but bad things do happen mm-hmm. to very hardworking people who who often do suffer and, and, and work quite a lot so no matter how hard we work or how much we suffer or how much we sacrifice we, we may not always achieve what we hope to achieve to think otherwise is a potentially damaging pattern of thought or, or a disappointing pattern of thought that can result in a lot of frustration anger and and even depression when uh, maybe the reward does not materialize or, or arrive. And, and I think that that's a really, really interesting one to note because I think this is such a socially constructed philosophy, isn't it? That, it is, yeah. And I think hustle. it's really hard to identify as a distortion. Yeah, it is. It feels like more unfairness, you know, right, like that, that life isn't fair, but I, I think it's this socialization as well of work hard, be rewarded, mm-hmm. right, work hard, good things will happen but what if that's not the case what what if that that doesn't always happen you know right so heaven's reward fallacy is a really really interesting one to note and one that we all might suffer from I'm so glad you included that one in there because I agree I think it's a really common one that is really tricky to identify Mm. as a distortion or as a thinking trap that can come up Kat, what are your top tips tricks and tools generally speaking so this is not personalized advice for anyone and this is not in replacement of individual therapy or treatment at all but just some general tips that we would suggest Kat what are your your top tips my top tips (laughs) this is 50% of my clinical work um Good question. If you have been listening to this and you have identified with one or a few or all of them, that's absolutely okay. It doesn't mean anything is wrong with you. It is a really, it's quite common uh, um, to experience some of these cognitive distortions. So something that usually a therapist will work through is, as I mentioned before, cognitive restructuring, which is identifying those thoughts right I think that the first step of cognitive restructuring is identifying the thoughts that are popping up for you I guess in in normal CBT and I'm not really I think I I take CBT with a bit of a grain of salt and I think it's an interesting just something that I guess in my work identifying the thought and changing it I think that's a really generic cookie cutter way to approach cognitive restructuring but I guess something that I might do with clients is is go a little deeper, is identifying the thought and understanding where has this thought come from? How has this served you? This thought may have served you or protected you. What was the function of this thought or what do you think the function of this thought might be? And it might be protective, it might be self-serving. And I think it's really good to understand where this has come from, the function of this thought, before you can kind of go straight into trying to change it and we don't often need to change every single thought I think that's a a bit of a flaw with CBT is this idea we need to change our thoughts but I think the best first thing that you can do is understand the thought understand the function that it's served understand why it's popping up for you understanding where it came from understanding how long you might have been feeling like this I think that's a really really good place to start is looking at those thoughts and then I think 
maybe a next step would be, well, have you had this thought before? What has been the expected outcome? What were you worried might happen? What are you protecting yourself from? And then what actually happened, you know? I think often this is developed as a way where maybe something maybe the worst case scenario has out, has happened or, or maybe something terrible has happened or there has been, I don't know, humiliating circumstances or, or something that our mind protects us from or maybe we've seen that ex- experience happen to someone else. So often there may be, um, <laughs> I wouldn't say method to the madness, but there may be a, a thought uh, or experience or memory underpinning all this which makes sense and I think that's Really something to emphasize here is that these thoughts, when you unpack them and understand them, they make sense. They might seem really rational on the surface. And I think that's what so many people get so not frustrated about, but almost yeah, disappointed about is, oh, it doesn't make sense. It's so irrational. Why am I thinking like this? And it's like, well, there was a time when this served you. This was really adaptive. And I think that your very, very skilled brain is just wanting to be safe than sorry. And that's not a bad thing. But I think working through it is helpful to know with a lot, a big healthy dose of self-compassion rather than just trying to quickly change it. I get so many clients who just want to change it and move on. But I think sitting with it and being compassionate and understanding of why this is occurring is really helpful. What do you think, Ames? Really, really love that explanation, Kat, and I agree. I think I have just a a little bit of a different framework because I do operate from a psychodynamic framework and I guess a trauma and attachment lens. My approach often encourages clients to explore childhood and past experiences, which I know is something that you do too, Kat, but I really include those experiences of the past and some of those things might be contradictory or not immediately apparent when working through some of these cognitive distortions, but I think it's really important because cognitive distortions are deeply rooted in the subconscious and connected sources to long-standing pain and trauma or and or trauma support is often needed to address the root causes of these patterns essentially i work to rewrite this script or narrative that we might be retelling ourselves and and the way we view ourselves and relate to others So often cognitive distortions around trauma, for example, might be that I can't trust anyone, no one is safe, can be corrected in the safe space created in therapy, providing that correctional relational experience, which can be transformative for those suffering cognitive distortions. I like to focus um, using therapy to gain that emotional insight to self as well. Like you were saying, Kat, that deeper understanding after a traumatic experience, often our perception of the world changes. And this is a normal reaction. This is a normal response because our nervous system is activated. We usually tend to see the world from that feeling brain perspective or from a lens of survival. So our cognitive or thinking brain is actually switched off. So unresolved trauma from the past can keep us stuck in those thought patterns because our nervous system is active. Cognitive distortions are negative thinking patterns that impact the way we feel about what's happened. They often become, you know, that real automatic compulsive experience. And it does feel awful. Like we were saying in the beginning, it is a really horrible thing to go through. So because our thoughts are impacting the way we feel about the world around us, things like identifying triggers, identifying where this response is coming from, and really considering you know, what perceptions of the past we might be responding to. Like Kat was saying, what, where, where might this have come from and how might we be relating to this? I tend to introduce things like the window of tolerance and polyvagal theory initially to stabilise our nervous system first so that we can start to explore some of those deeper-rooted patterns. I have noticed that once clients realise that this is not a wrongness about them but rather a dysregulated response, it's easier to start to integrate self-compassion and acceptance and acknowledging and recognizing these thought traps as cognitive distortions uh, rather than, you know, why am I thinking this? Why am I feeling that way? And actually getting quite frustrated and angry at yourself because it can be too. It can be really, really frustrating to experience this and and to to not have that understanding. Um, So once we kind of build that base and we can expand our capacity to shift and get out of those 
stinking thinking traps. <laughs> You've been waiting to say that. I have. I've all episode. I'm like, oh, I can't wait to say the stinking thinking traps. Um, I forgot to say it at the start, so I was like, I've got to, I've got to whip it in there somewhere. Um, I find that can be really helpful. Other more practical things that can be helpful to recognize when we find ourselves in these thought traps are things like journaling, so writing down how we're we're thinking and what we're thinking about and different triggers as a reflection tool so something to look back on and notice those patterns notice what might be coming up for us can be really helpful and i think because often cognitive distortions are so correlated to things like anxiety depression Mm -hmm. obsessive compulsive disorder panic disorder, PTSD, CPTSD, eating disorders, disorders, absolutely. Working, uh, I guess, to address those things or or those, Mm. you know, um, comorbidities, it is also fundamental, Mm. I would say. So Mm. definitely therapy. Yeah, and often cognitive distortions can strengthen. So remember Mm. that our brain looks for evidence to strengthen cognitive distortions and core beliefs. So you may notice that as you get older or as you go through life this may become more yeah more severe and more strong Mm. for you you may notice you're thinking about this more you're more focused on it and this core you know whatever your core belief might be might be strengthened so certainly um, therapy can be a great place to do some cognitive restructuring or some trauma work to understand these thoughts and I think take away the personalization lol of them (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to take away that that it's not yeah as Ames is saying it's, it's not a wrong it's not you're not flawed it, it's something that is very very adaptive that we've learned to help ourselves it's just is it helpful now is it helpful anymore mm. right um something uh, yeah certainly therapy can be really really wonderful CBT and trauma um trauma informed therapists can be wonderful looking at your original thought as Ames was saying journaling um something you can do just go one step further if you can do this on your own is write down your original thought which cognitive distortion was it try and figure out which one it was um this is what my clients get to do before I work um and then trying to write down other interpretations of the event or the thought so what would the other person have seen from their end of it what else could have been going on what's another way to look at the situation that can be a really really helpful tool that you can do actually individually this doesn't need a lot of intervention with um that really simple technique even a column technique in your journal can be wonderful cost benefit analysis for any of the accounting nerds out there people usually repeat behaviors that deliver some benefit so every behavior has a function it is helpful to analyze how your thought patterns have helped you cope in the past as we're saying before do they give you a sense of control in situations where you feel powerless do they make you more risk averse and keep you safe do they allow you to avoid taking responsibility or taking as i said any further risks you can ask yourself what engaging in cognitive distortions costs you. Weighing the pros and cons of the thought pattern can also motivate you to change them. Love that. Yes. Beautiful tips. Yes. One other little thing that I just thought of that I might add, what I will, would usually recommend to clients outside of therapy is to, if you're finding that you're really stuck in those stinking thinking traps <laughs> and <laughs> And, and yeah, and it is becoming quite repetitive and, and yeah, really, really tricky is to actually not focus on the thoughts. Don't explore why, why that thought is mm. popping up. That's sometimes really unhelpful mm. because when you are stuck in cognitive distortion, you will find evidence to prove it because it feels real. It feels true. It feels awful. So, so actually trying to banish the thought, trying to not think about not think about the thought, and actually focusing on the feeling. So becoming more emotionally focused because absolutely it feels awful. So acknowledging that right now I'm feeling really overwhelmed with this, you know, mental filter that I'm experiencing or with this all or nothing thinking. This feels really awful. This feels really stressful and anxiety inducing. And working on the feeling and the experience rather than exploring the actual thought because that's sometimes really unhelpful. So really sitting with and observing just that feeling and even going into your body, how is my body responding to this? Usually it will feel a lot like nervous energy Mm -hmm. or anxiety. So coming from that, I guess, 
caring for your anxiety lens and caring for the emotional experience rather than investigating the the cognition because again we're, we're usually coming from a survival you know protective adaptive response our brain is trying to problem solve or fix something so if you know we're, we're not engaged in therapy sometimes wanting to explore the thought can, can actually not be so helpful but for some people yes it can be but if you find that that's not the case for you sitting with the feeling uh, or the physiological sensation or experience can be helpful yeah, if you're triggered if mm. if you're in that fight or flight then cognitive goes out the window yeah analyzing analyzing a thought can be really overwhelming so i think it will always be calming that nervous system down and then you can certainly work through that also often if you banish a thought that brain likes to bring it back it's like mm. a bit rebellious so your brain will be like oh you want me to banish this thought i'm going to bring it back sometimes accepting like just yes. almost like just yeah. letting it come and letting it go a thought is a thought it doesn't often mean anything your brain is just throwing lots of scary stuff or, or dangerous stuff in front of you so that you can plan and take action but often big probabilities that these these things never come true so accept the thought let it come let it go acknowledge accept, acknowledge, accept. yeah like a little like you're watching clouds i would say attach your thoughts to the clouds let it come let it go that can be a really helpful way to regulate as well if you're just in that Almost that metacognitive um, analysis paralysis, it can be overwhelming if you're noticing your your um, fight or flight is switching on. So really more helpful to try in therapy first and then if you can outside of therapy, but more, yeah, focusing on those relaxation mm. and ACT kind of. This is a really multi-pronged, um, <laughs> multi-framework kind of way. EFG. <laughs> All right, guys, that is all the time we have for you today. Um, We hope that that was helpful in going through some cognitive distortions. If you did relate to any of this, we will probably be putting some stuff on this on our Instagrams over the next week. You can have a little follow us on the at the psych collaborative or at the psychology sisters that's our instagram page please know that this information is just general in nature and does not replace personalized psychological advice but we hope that this was helpful in educating you and giving you some more awareness around unhelpful thinking styles or cognitive distortions thank you so much guys we really really appreciate your support and we look forward to being back in your listening ears next time Bye. bye Thanks so much for tuning in to today's episode. If you're not already, please follow us on Instagram at The Psychology Sisters. We are also now providing online psychological sessions. For more information, please follow us at The Psych Collaborative. See you next time.